We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. And in today's show, we have a special ICRT TVBS World Taiwan Election Roundtable event that was recorded at the National Taiwan Normal University in Taipei. I was joined there by National Zhengzhou University Assistant Professor Lev Nackman, Bloomberg's Taipei Bureau Chief Samson Ellis, independent journalist, writer and host Fan Chi Fei, and Oakland University Associate Professor Su Chao Ning. And I will apologise, we had a problem with one of our microphones roughly halfway through the presentation, but we did our best to fix that problem, and it only lasts about a minute and a half. And I began by asking Lev Nackman to explain what's happening with the polls at the moment here in Taiwan. Uh, thank you. Uh, also, thank you for inviting me to be on this this panel. Uh, for a little bit of context, I, I study public opinion for a living. I, I do polls uh, during my own research. Uh, you know, it's one of those uh, challenges when we talk about polling and pop media discourse where this election in particular, I think we have dogmatically worshipped the polls in a way that I have not seen in the past where we are like frothing at the mouth for polling data on a daily basis. Uh, and what I really think is important, not, not to immediately contradict what was just said, but we should be comparing all of the polls all of the time because it really is a matter of making sure that we're reading lots of different polls. There is no perfect poll. There is no magic formula. Uh, and anyone who does public opinion for a living will, will, will happily be the most skeptical of any single poll that claims to be of the highest quality because every poll tries to be of the highest quality. Uh, unfortunately, doing public opinion is just a really difficult task. And the method has unfortunately been, I think, uh, under, under a lot of attention this election cycle in ways that I think have led us to believe that there's magic in these numbers. And, and really the best thing you can do is to uh, look widely at different kinds of polls. And when I say different kinds of polls, obviously I mean looking at you know, the, the you know, internal makeup of these polls, how they're done, but also whose the background are these polls. Obviously we have lots of different kinds of polling in Taiwan. We have news outlets who do polling, we have think tanks who do polling, we have parties who do polling, and we have academics who do polling. And all four of those groups have very different approaches to how we actually do these polls and what the purpose of these polls are uh, and how we present the data. Uh, and really the best thing we can do is to look widely and say, okay, well, if every poll says that lie is in first, I'm probably going to believe that lie is in first. Uh, but for a long time, it wasn't very clear who was in second. And so what that told me is that we probably don't really know who's in second. Uh, these days, looking at the polling trends, especially in light of uh, the most fantastic press conference in Taiwan's history two weeks ago, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that we know Definitely who's in third, which is probably Koenja. We know that uh, Lai is still in first um, and that Ho is probably in second. Uh, beyond that, I think you know anyone who wants to know the very specific numbers, you're going to have a tough time because polling is incredibly necessary. We, we need to be able to have our finger on as close to a pulse as possible. But it's just important to keep in mind that this is a very imperfect art and every academic will, will, will happily echo a similar sentiment. And Chief Ai. All right. Okay. Um, you know, um, actually, about do I believe in polls? Um, actually, after 2016, uh, after Trump got elected, I never believe in polls anymore. <laughs> and then, um, so yes, I still look at polls mostly just to prove that if my point of view is right. That's the main point. You know, I only 
I, you know, when the poll says agree with me, then then I say it's correct. Don't do that. That's confirmation <laughs> bias. <laughs> All right, I'm kidding. Okay, but you know, I still look at polls. I still do. But I, but I have to say that you know,、uh, when I look at polls, I'm I'm very careful. I I I'm a, with a lot of suspicion. Any polls, okay. To start with that, and then, but with the, this uh, this polls that TPP has conducted, I have to say that、um, the uh, the the thing that I'm looking for, the most important information for me, is that after the the blue white camp, the alliance failed. I want to know who got the blame. And obviously, the answer is Ke Wenzhe got the blame. And I think it reflected in all kinds of polls that、um, before the the this alliance talk,、uh, I think he was leading a hole at that time. But now most of the polls saying that he is lagging. So I'm I'm pretty sure that、uh, this reflect people's、uh, sentiment is that where they assign the blame. All right, and then so I think.、Um, Uh, and the other thing that、uh, this post tell me actually is a little bit different from、uh, the information that I saw from other posts is that、uh, Zhao Shaokang after Zhao Shaokang joined the KMT ticket, a lot of people are saying that、uh, it get KMT a big boost and he is collecting a lot of、uh, young voters' votes、uh, from Ke Wenzhe's camp. I have to say that、like, when I was looking at a TVBS poll this time, I have I'm 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 a little confusing、um, because this is aligned with the people my friends in KMT told me that, but most of the polls would tell you otherwise.、Um, Zhao Shaokang didn't really collect the poll. I did, didn't really attract the young people to come to KMT. All right. I like to know what happened because you know I think this is for KMT's choice、uh, for this vice president.、Uh, for me, I mean, you know, I, I could always have, you know people hate me when I say that. You know, I feel, but that's, this is how I feel. When they make this choice, actually reflect、um, a lot of young people's complaint. One is KMT still focus is still an old people party. And the second of all is that I really question their ability to revamp this very old party. All right. So, so when I when I was looking at this poll, I have to I have to ask myself, does they say anything about that? So I don't know if TVBS, when you guys conduct the interview, are we talking about response bias or? Uh, a lot of people are saying house effect. Does that play a role in this? Because other polls are saying that Zhao Shaokang didn't really attract a lot of young people come back to KMT. That's it for me. And Chiao Ning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me、uh, for today's conversation.、Um, so, political scientists would read the poll and try to make a prediction. And Lev here is a decent political scientist, so he's not doing that.、Uh, but I think the reason that we are having pause is to get an understanding of the situation, the pattern, the longitudinal trend, like who is leading,、uh, who is the second, and who is the third, and to read. All recent polls together, I think we are seeing the trend that Lai Qingde and Xiao Biting ticket is still leading, and、uh, the blue camp has returned home. So now、uh, Zhao Shaokang, Hou Youyi is the second place, and then. 
uh, Koenja is at the third, right? I think that's that's a clear trend as of now, but we are still a month to go um, until the Taiwanese people go to the polls. So all things could happen in the upcoming 30 days. As a communication scholar, I am more interested in how those numbers being used for media agenda setting, right? So just today, and I think yesterday, both KMT and DPP announced their internal poll, claiming that they are actually polling very, very strong. I think Eric Ju uh, just this afternoon said that uh, actually Hou Yuyi and Zhao Shaokang is actually now leading in the poll by uh, less than 1%, but they are leading. Who, who did that poll? I, I, they say it's for their internal oh, internal use. Internal use, okay. So that, that would be an interesting way to... Uh, Think about the intersection between the scientific number and the agenda setting and the purpose of boosting morale uh, to drive the public discourse. And that is to see the poll from a communication perspective. So as, as a voter, um, I think we have to take everything into consideration and so to truly understand the meaning of the poll. And Lev, we were talking about young voters there, seeing you're the youngest person sitting at this table. Um, you're qualified to answer the question. So what about the young vote? Are young people flocking to Zhao Xiaokang and the KMT? No. <laughs> Uh, so, so one of the research projects I've been working on this semester is I, I've actually been going around to different Taiwanese universities and conducting focus groups with, with college students between you know, 18 and 25, and we're having like, really intense discussions about you know, why they feel the way they feel, because this is a really important question of trying to understand why young voters are particularly jaded in this election in ways that I don't think we've seen in past elections. And this is a very important question, trying to, underco- trying to uncover how exactly youth political attitudes have changed. However... I think we have spilt so much ink on youth politics deciding this presidential election, and young people are not going to decide this presidential election. Not because their votes don't matter, purely just out of demography. Young people in Taiwan vote the least. That's not a Taiwan problem, that's a democracy all over the world problem. Young people tend not to vote, and those who do vote tend to be of older cohorts. And Taiwan has a lot of very active voter older cohorts. Uh, Put differently, old people really like to vote in Taiwan. Uh, and that's, that's a good problem. It's good when we have lots of voters. But unfortunately, uh, that means that this youth vote that we've spent so much time talking about is not going to have this dire impact that uh, I think a lot of us are, are anticipating it to have. Again, very important question to, under, to understand why young people feel the way they do, but I think we are overstating a little bit the role it's going to have in deciding who's going to be president. Uh, how it will have a bigger impact, I believe, is, is when it comes to uh, the party vote, because I do think that uh, especially Kowenja's uh, TPP is going to be vying for those youth votes for their party vote in order to make sure that they're able to squeeze uh, as many legislators uh, into the legislative UN as they possibly can. Chow Ning, what about Lev's comments there about the TPP and the young vote? Yeah, I mean, if you look around, um, the, the, the vote of the youth are not the most reliable, if I can be polite and say that. They are not the most reliable at times, but that doesn't mean they are not important. And just by you know, looking at the three different camps, using different strategies to engage uh, the younger voters, you can see that they really value the vote of the youth and they try to uh, mobilize them uh, either through the sentiment of resentment and then mobilize them to vote against DPP 
or to use innovative approach to engage them. Um, one thing I do want to mention as a communication scholar, I find it fascinating this time around, is how TPP, uh, Cohen Just Party, was able to use TikTok you know, this short form video, very popular social media platform for self-promotion and for political conversation. And that really uh, posed a question and a dilemma for DPP, uh, a, 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 a political party that is very concerned about the Chinese interference, who see uh, TikTok as a platform governed by the Chinese algorithm, the Chinese logic. Uh, so they strategically chose to not have a presence on the platform. And I think that becomes a dilemma for democracy around the world. Do we want to have a presence on a platform like TikTok just to have impact to some extent? Or in this case of presidential election and political conversation, maybe your absence itself is more meaningful as a protest. I don't know. I think that will be a dilemma for democracy and a big topic for debate. Can I add something to that? I'm sorry. Because, you know, this is, uh, I have to say, um uh, I won't say that youth votes uh, won't be impactful. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you are right, okay? But my experience is that we have been quoting the uh, candidates who talk to us for a very long time. I think, you know, we have been trying that for like six months, seven, uh, seven months. Nobody wants to talk to us. But recently, everybody pop up. Everybody come to me, everybody. I'm talking about Hou Yongyi. We just did a conversation with Ke Wenzhi. Okay, Xiao Meiji come to talk to us. Everybody want to talk to us because my fan base is from 25 to 44. All right? They really wanted those votes. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But, but you know, but, but what I'm trying to say that everybody come to us and saying that they try to court the young votes. That's their purpose. They, they want to call the young votes. So, so I'm saying that, you know, I think because it's a very close election, I think. I think. I, I, don't, I don't know if it is. It looks, I look at the number. It looks like it's very close. So I think they are really trying to pick up every vote they can find. And Chief A, how are they trying to do this? I mean, how are they going? Are they, are they going to raise wages? Are they offering to raise wages? What are they doing? What are these parties doing to attract the young vote? And is it is it working? Oh, that's the thing. I don't think it's working. <laughs> All right. So I think the young people are concerned about two things mostly. I think it's wage stagnation. The other thing is affordable housing. And then we check all three parties' uh, policy on how to deal with that. I, I have to say that I, I didn't see anything too interesting because, uh, like, you know, some of them are saying uh, use, like, tax credit, like, help, help the young people, and then uh, to, 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 you know, so they, are, they will be easier to get loans from the bank. Uh, or uh, about the wages, they are talking about uh, raising the minimum wages. But I think they... They never really dare to deal with the core of the issues, like you know, like housing. I think the the, the problem of it is that um, is on the demand side. We just didn't didn't have enough affordable housing, and then and then when uh, everybody was promising they are going to build more social housing, and then they couldn't get it because you know the land is very precious in Taiwan. So, so when when I look at their policies, they can see whatever they want and how much they can deliver is another thing in the future, and everybody knows that. Can I add to that? Um, so I think with only 30 days to election, uh, we are going to see a lot of like really flashy 
policy proposal uh, try to target the younger voter. For example, uh, this is not, I'm criticizing a specific camp, but I just thought this could be a good example to think about uh, if this is just a, a flashy slogan or is this is something really a visible policy. For example, yesterday, I think the whole camp proposed this new idea that to extend after school care to 7 p.m., as a way to help the young parents, the younger parents, they can stay in the workforce a little bit longer. They can come pick up their children a little bit longer, uh, a little bit later, right? But already the policy itself has been questioned by the Federation of Teachers Union in Taiwan, saying that this is a very problematic policy. For one, the Taiwanese students already stay at school the longest across the world, nine hours. And now we are proposing to extend that to 12 hours. That's one. Two, is this really the best uh, situation for teachers as well? What about their work-life balance? That's two. And three, could this be used by the business owner to justify the extension of the working hours, right? All this together makes this proposal itself questionable, yet with only 30 days to the election. This seems to be such a, uh, you know, a catchy, fl flashy uh, policy, very much targeting on a specific democratic. So I think as voters, we need to uh, brace ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves that we are going to see a lot of this kind of policy proposals uh, with, with only 30 days to election. Uh, but but we, I think we also need to have, have the uh, intelligence to decipher through those policies. Is this really achievable? Is is this really feasible, or is this just a talking point to get some media attention? And Samson? Uh, I, I tend to agree with uh, what Lev said, and just because of the demographics of Taiwan, right, you're getting a smaller and smaller pool of voters on the younger side. Taiwan's population is already declining, um, plus the tendency of younger voters not to turn out in as uh, great a number as their uh, older counterparts just means that the, the vote is shrinking. <clears throat> but on the other hand, in terms of messaging, as we've been talking about, it will probably uh, dominate uh, the messaging in the uh, last part of the election for a couple of reasons. One is that that's where the largest group of attractable voters is, middle-of-the-ground voters, or undecided voters, or new voters who, who, whose uh, political identities isn't quite as set and as well-formed as their, their parents' and grandparents' is. So go after that demographic hard. Number one. Number two, uh, announcing policies that uh, appeal to younger people doesn't necessarily just appeal to young people. It will also appeal to their parents as well, to a, cer to a certain degree. Um, uh, and so I think uh, in terms of uh, the way they want to message uh, you know, in, the, in the final days before the campaign, it, it will likely dominate. Just to get to a couple of points though, on, uh, in terms of, you know, wage stagnation and uh, housing prices. I mean, it is quite remarkable how different the situation is from people's uh, impression of the situation. Because if, if you look at uh, wage growth, Taiwan's wages have risen over the past seven years at their fastest pace since the 1990s. Wages over the past seven years have risen tw more than twice as fast as under Chen Shui-bian and under Ma Ying-jeou. Uh, in terms of property prices, you can look at property prices. Property prices that have absolutely flattened out. They are, they are not rising incredibly fast, with a few exceptions like Xinjiang uh, and now obviously Kaohsiung. 
which have got you know major industrial reasons for doing so. But Taipei, Tai property prices in Taipei are flat. In Wanhua, where I live, uh, property prices have come down 30% over the last uh, uh, 10 years, which nobody is talking about, just because people tend to look at property prices as a whole for, for the entire city. And then obviously, Nangang, Da'an, Da'zhi is still you know, keeping the average price fairly high. So in terms of, but again, the, the problem with that and Lev made this point uh, at another talk last week that the DPP government is very, very bad at uh, humble bragging, I think, about their economic achievements. Um, one of the issues you'll face there is it's impossible to tell people how they should be feeling about themselves economically. So even if you do throw a bunch of numbers and a bunch of statistics at them, telling them you should be feeling better off than you do, if they don't, there's no point in telling them. And Stan, were you, Samson, are messaging the message, of course, on China? How are you seeing that play out in this election? Well, obviously, <clears throat> I think the really interesting thing following, again, that absolutely wonderful briefing at the Grand Hyatt a couple of weeks ago is that we are now seeing uh, cross-strait relations take its uh, formal and traditional place at the top of the table in terms of... Uh, uh, this, this election, and I think with the VP choices as well, it is really clearly as a really clear demarcation of where each party is putting their emphasis. So obviously, with uh, the, the KMT and choosing Zhao Shaokang, shore up uh, you know the hardcore KMT base, and that primarily that is the 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 issue of uh, to a certain degree identity and the uh, Waisheng votes, uh, but also uh, a slightly more, you know, strident line on the issue of unification. Uh, and then uh, with uh, Lai Qingde and the choice of uh, Xiaobi Kim, uh, you know, that obviously sends a very strong signal about where the DPP sees Taiwan's future as well. So as much as we have been and we will continue to talk about uh, issues like uh, economic issues like uh, wages and, and property prices uh, really this election looks like it is coming down to a, a referendum on where voters see Taiwan's long term future. Two points uh, so first on, on the question of, of what do young people want so unfortunately this is uh, the obnoxious answer is this is a question of public opinion and without good public opinion data asking young people what they want. We, we don't know what young people exactly want. We have a lot of good anecdotal evidence that says they care about wages and, and, and housing. I think we, we hear that all the time. Young people care about wages and housing. Uh, I think the, the challenge with that is it, it assumes that a lot of 18-year-old or 20-year-old voters have like these very strong formed opinions about wages and housing, and, and, and a lot of them don't. Uh, after spending a lot of time with young voters this, these, this last six months, uh, a lot of them who are voting for the first time, if you're 20 years old, that means that eight years ago you were 12, which means that you've grown up with the DPP in power. And, and you know, when I was 18, I was like very much like fight the man. And, and for a lot of these new voters, the DPP is the man. Like, it's not so much that they have clear policy recommendations they would like the DPP to enact. It's more like they've been the power for eight years, and, and we, want, we want to fight the power. We want something different. Now, that doesn't make that feeling bad or disingenuous. It's just I think we prescribe this idea that young people have these very clear agendas on, on, on salaries that they would like to see enacted when a lot of the time I, I think that's, that's, again, overstating what I think a lot of public opinion would actually reflect. But, but yes, to, to double down on the point, the DPP has done a, a bad job of, of humble bragging how wages have actually grown 
because young people don't know that. Uh, I think, again, to tie in what, what Chowning was saying about TikTok, because the TPP is the only party on TikTok, that means that the DPP loses that entire audience, which means they have... Uh, oh, KMT is as well? Excuse me. The DPP is the only major party not on TikTok. There we go. Uh, so they, they are essentially seeding this entire giant space that young people spend so much time on. So of course young people have negative opinions of the DPP. The only thing they ever hear is negative opinions about the DPP. Um, to, to, to Samson's point about you know, cross-strait relations really coming in, you know, I think for the last six months, a lot of people said, you know, this is going to be the election where we talk about wages and domestic policy, and we don't care about China this election. And then the VP picks happened, and everyone said, oh, just kidding, this is, this is going to be about China again. Uh, and I really think that just is a statement to you know, what we know about Taiwanese politics. When Taiwan is a contested state, uh, it means that the fundamental political issue is still going to always be, you know, who are we, where are we, and what is our future going to be with the PRC? And we're seeing that to become very true. Uh, Zhao Saokang and Xiaomeqin are, are both two very strong picks for both camps and both very much lean into these frames and rhetoric about cross-strait relations in a way that I think we're going to just see a very traditional blue-green uh, competition, something that we know, something that we're all very used to for those who follow Taiwan politics. And, and just very quickly, I think the TPP's effort to move beyond that debate and not have that debate and seeing what's happening to them in the polls now is just a, an additional indication that the overall debate and what voters want is clarity on that issue rather than the you know, extreme deliberate vagueness of the TPP. Chief A. Mm -hmm. Yes. So what do you want to know? China. We have to know about the, the elephant in the room being China. Okay. Um, I think about China. Um, it, it, it will always... All right. I just conducted um, an interview with Cohen Joe just a few days ago. And then I asked him blank out. I said, do you see China as a threat? And he just answered me, yes. I wish... Taiwan can switch geopoli uh, geopolitical uh, location with Cuba. All right, that's why he said. So I have to say that I think, you know, we are reaching to a point we probably would have a consensus on how to deal with China. Because, you know, I think in the past, in the past, a lot of people would say that uh, we want democracy. This is a consensus. But how to deal with China? Everybody has different ideas. All right, but I think in this election, I think we are seeing that more and more clear, the consensus is China is a threat. Then we deal with it accordingly. That's why when I look at all three camps of foreign policy, they are not too different. How to deal with the United States, they say Tsai Ing-wen, they are all going to follow Tsai Ing-wen, whatever she's doing right now. And then how to deal with China, uh, we always know DPP's position, all right? And then Ko Wenzhe just told me that China is a threat too. And, and Hou Youyi, probably not that clear, you know, he, he is pretty vague on this, but he also pledged that, he also pledged that Taiwan have to strengthen our national defense, all right? He also put this as a most utmost like campaign talking point too. So I would say that we are reaching to a, probably we finally would have a consensus. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, we probably can reach a consensus how to deal with China. Chow Ning, do you agree with that? Can Taiwan reach a consensus on how to deal with China at this election? Um, I think that would be an even longer discussion, but this is, could be a good starting point. And I think that's an ongoing conversation. I think China and the China factor will be uh, essential for the upcoming months. 
but I think, and I agree with everybody, the point being made, uh, I do think what is under-discussed during this election season is the Chinese interference. Actually, a lot of people told me, uh, I just came back from San Francisco two weeks ago, uh, a lot of uh, you know, American scholars would be like, oh, we don't really see like Chinese interference this time. I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The fact that Terry Wu would just drop out after some, after some pressure move from China, put Foxycon under investigation, and then Terry Wu would just drop out like that. That's a very clear, prime example of Chinese interference. And Chinese interference is like everywhere, from cognitive warfare, uh, from this uh, the, the, the treat uh, uh, host a, a, a big number of bureau chiefs, uh, village leaders to China uh, with unreasonably low prices. All these are Chinese interference uh, during this election season. Uh, and yet, it is so under-discussed. It is such a threat to our national security, yet it is so under-discussed uh, because people, when they think about four years ago, and when they think about you know, the social movement in Hong Kong, that was a daily reminder. That was a visual daily reminder of Chinese interference. And just because we are not seeing that this year, just because it's getting more sophisticated and quiet, and then we don't talk about it. I think that's that's the true danger here. We know that it's never a question of like, is the PRC trying to influence the election? It's, it's how are they trying to influence the election? Uh, and I do think that, you know, every election inevitably becomes a question about cross-strait relations and what do we want our future with the PRC to be. Uh, eight years ago, it was framed through the lens of the Sunflower Movement. Uh, four years ago, it was framed through the lens of Hong Kong. And this year, it's, it's very quickly becoming framed as this choice between war and peace, autocracy versus democracy. Uh, but it's not nearly as, I think Chowning is totally right, we don't have the daily reminders in the way that we have had in the past. Um, but we still most certainly see it happening. Even just today, there was another uh, Taiwanese citizen uh, sentenced to a year in jail in, in, in China. Uh, and the TAO, the Taiwan Affairs Office, gave a whole presser about it, saying how you know, they hope that uh, they're, they're not discussing this with, with Taiwan right now because the current Taiwanese government has not acknowledged the 92 consensus. As if to discuss about a Taiwanese person's welfare in China, uh, a necessary condition is to, is to accept the 92 consensus, which is, which is a very indirect uh, you know, shot at the DPP saying that you know, if the DPP is in power, we're still not going to be able to talk about these things. And the TAO goes on to say how they look forward to uh, future cross-strait service uh, bills being passed with you know, very much in a throwback way to the 2014 cross-strait service trade agreement that, that started the whole Sunflower movement. Uh, you know, I, I, these, the, the timing of such a, an event on the side of the PRC is, is, is not coincidence. Uh, you know, I think they're, they're, they're definitely trying to signal uh, to uh, the Taiwanese government and Taiwanese voters. The question, of course, is, is how effective is this? Uh, I think if you look back at 2020, there's, there's so much research on disinformation, cognitive warfare, um, like, there's, there's so many reports about how in 2020, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of YouTube videos with simplified Chinese characters uh, or talking about, you know, don't vote, you know, don't bother voting for Tsai Ing-wen, you know, Taiwanese democracy is a lost cause. So we, we know they happen, but, but if you look at the 2020 results, Tsai Ing-wen won by a landslide. So what does that tell us is that it's, it's not always very sophisticated and it doesn't always have the intention that the PRC wants it to have. Now, I think that the, the challenge is that it, it, it is still very present, and, and the concern is, 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 is it getting more sophisticated, I think, is what we're all trying to better understand. And Samson, is it, trying, is it getting more sophisticated? Uh, I think for sure. I mean, one, one of the... Um... 
uh, hallmarks of the last election uh, four years ago was that uh, that was one of the big messages as China's trying to interfere uh, with this uh, election. Uh, and as Lev said, a lot of the attempts were rather uh, poor and uh, very transparent and very clear um, where, where they were coming from. This time it de definitely has become uh, less noticeable, but more pervasive. Uh, and and it's a you know across the board. I mean, from media and uh, you know, what, one of the big uh, ways they're trying to influence the election is is talking down the United States, right? Trying to broaden and uh, increase the level of uh, skepticism of the United States uh, in Taiwan, particularly among young people. But um, I mean, it go you know it, it's across everywhere. I mean, we we we've just published a story uh, looking at. Uh, the readiness of the financial system here to be able to withstand uh, Chinese attempts to affect uh, both financial markets plus also consumer banking and uh, the results are very very scary um, and you know the, these come down to, to incidents like um, uh, about a year ago I think if I remember correctly um, you know, um, foreign actors you can uh, decide for yourselves where those foreign actors are based um, managed to gain access to uh, the accounts uh, in, in a Taiwan bank and then just uh, reallocate funds and buy a bunch of uh, Hong Kong junk stocks. Uh, just as a message uh, to all of the account holders that we can get in anytime we want and we can move your money where we want as well. So all of these things are just like tiny little, well, not even tiny, they're, they're very pertinent reminders uh, that you know the threat and the attempts to uh, influence uh, are always present. And Chief A, do you see China stepping up its military coercion in the lead up to the election? Uh, the military co uh, coercion is definitely they are stepping up. Okay, uh, especially I think and we see quite clearly after Pelosi visit Taiwan. Um, the jet, uh, the fighter jets come to Taiwan more often, and then they also have the drill on the east side of Taiwan. These are both, uh, from a military point of view, are actually very consequential. Okay, and then, but I like to talk about the sophistication about China's. Uh, like in, in disinformation attacking Taiwan, because recently we just did a report, which is about uh, we are we are we and uh, the Taiwanese government and the Indian government are talking about uh, uh, importing some uh, Indian uh, workers into Taiwan. All right, and then so when we are doing this discussion, um, I have to say that there are a lot of Chinese simplified characters information coming in. And then they are all saying something like, um, it's very discriminated. I mean, you know, they're saying that the, 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 the Indian blue colors, are, are, they, they are, they rape women. And then they, if we allow them to come into Taiwan, the Taiwanese woman's uh, safety is, is, you know, is, is in danger, you know, stuff like that. And then, so when we try to, um, uh, you know, so when we were trying to communicate with the public, this is, you know, this is about two countries, and then this is a, a MOU, and then there's a, for it to actually happen, it takes years, and then, and then this is just a, a very beginning, and also whatever you're saying is, is racial discrimination, okay? 
and then I have to say that um, uh, the government says that this is probably a attack from China's disinformation. At first, I really doubted it. But later on, I have to say that because the amount of the um, this kind of uh, comments coming in is just, it's, it's just too much. And then I have to say, some of our young people actually got affected by that. I, I, I can feel that. that and, then that's the, this, and then the frustration probably is not only because um, the, uh, you know, the rape problem. I, I don't think it's only because of that. I think a lot of the frustration is coming out because they think their labor condition is very poor. And then, and then now we are going to have more outsiders coming to Taiwan. So, but when we are talking about the sophistication of China's disinformation, I have to say that they are, it's not just about like saying China is great, so you know, come with us. It's not like that anymore. I think they are trying to just divide you and you know, make you distrust each other. I think that's their tactic right now. And then they are like trying to influence our public discourse. We cannot really have a proper like, a discussion about important issues. I think that's what they are doing to us right now. And Chow Ning, do you think the government should be doing more to stop this type of behavior? I, I definitely think so. I definitely think so. And I'm so glad Shifei mentioned that example because that's the evolution of weaponization of this misinformation that we've been seeing in the field of communication. In the past, it was more of a direct promotion of the Chinese government, CCP, PLA. But recently, we are seeing this evolution of discourse. It's less about China directly, but it's about you know putting a distance between Taiwan and its key allies. So American skepticism is a prime example of this misinformation. Uh, warfare, this misinformation campaign right now. Uh, if you look at the report published by IORG, uh, they documented all the uh, examples of American skepticism in the past two years. There are 84 different examples and patterns of American except, uh, skepticism, like how, you know, TSMC now opened its factory in Arizona is the American attempt to like hallow the semiconductor industry in Taiwan, and so we should be very mindful. And all, all these are just telling us that China really is taking a page from Russia's playbook. I mean, the American Congress has a full documentation of Russian interference into their domestic politics, and China is doing the same thing. China is using all this discourse to dis dis instill the distrust in our government and then to alienate Taiwanese government from our key allies. So we definitely need to be more careful with that. So I'm happy to see that there seems to be some synergy between the government and the civil society right now. Uh, we do have a robust uh, fact-checking uh, system in Taiwan initiated by both the government and the civil groups, and I can name so many of them, and I have great admiration for their effort. I think that's a very... Uh, it's, it's a baby step, but it's a crucial step for us to survive and keep our resilience in this new uh, disinformation ecosystem. Going back to the elections themselves, and Lev, I mean, you're looking at the legislative election. Do you see the DPP losing its majority? The TPP, as Mr. Kerwood like, coming in as a supposed kingmaker, or maybe the KMT taking back its once majority? Yeah, so... Um even if Lai wins the presidency, I think we're looking at a very likely reality that the DPP will lose its majority in the legislative UN, which means that even if William Lai is president, he's going to have a really tough time passing any sort of big policy changes over the next four years. Uh, 
Now, whether or not the TPP plays a role in, in helping the KMT form a coalition against the DPP, I think kind of remains to be seen. Uh, if we compare to how the TPP did in 2020, they received 11% of the proportional representation votes, the, the Bufan Chu Piao. And that got them enough for, for five seats in, in, in the legislative UN. Uh, I, I expect them to, at the very least, match that number. So, so I would anticipate they get at least five legislators. Uh, whether or not they get more, I think, is really going to depend on how much popularity uh, Kawanja is able to really pull over the next month. Uh, I don't know that they'll be able to really win any sort of district races. Their, their, their biggest base of support is in Shinju. Uh, and unfortunately, that's also the biggest base of support for the new power party, uh, which means that I think in Shinju, we're going to ironically see some four-way races, which is just going to split votes left and right, and I really couldn't tell you who's going to win those. Uh, now, the, the, what the DPP and the KMT are going to really need to do is, is to, you know, of course, win as many district uh, races as possible, but also really try to pull for the party vote. I think it's going to be a very big symbolic uh, um, victory for the DPP if they can match the 34% that they earned in 2020, but I think they're going to have a really hard time doing so. And Samson, the party vote. Obviously, some interesting people on the party list. Uh, I'm... The, the main thing I'm looking forward to in this election is the re-emergence re of Han Goryu as, as a figure in national politics in Taiwan. Um, I just if, if you are a DPP lawmaker, I'd walk around with a motorcycle helmet on just in case he uh, starts getting punchy again. Chief Fei, the legislative election. Okay, um, I talked to Kevin about this, okay, and then I actually asked him, would you support Han Guoyu as the next uh, chief of Lifa uh, Yuanzhang, okay, just, you know, if it is possible. And he said, is that it's possible or that that is you know he said it's possible because you know um, um, I, I think he wants to play this like important role as the uh, like buff, buffer between this blue and green you know and then he wants to be the key segment they could play an important uh, decisive factor in the future so he said he's willing to work with the KMT However, uh, I have to say that I seriously doubt he can deliver that. The reason is, I don't think he's going to be a very powerful chairman anymore. All right, if this election, uh, 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 his party doesn't, I mean, oppose, I mean, you know, the, 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 the end result is not very good. He's supposed to step down, and then he already says that he's not. But however, I'm just looking at TPP. I have to ask uh, for all this uh, for all these candidates you supported, you nominated. What support did you give them during this campaign? Not much, not much, because you know we have words coming out from all these candidates and saying that we need support from from the TPP party, and then could you give me people, could you give me a money? They are saying that you are on your own. So I seriously doubt, even if TPP gained, say, eight to 10 seats, how much Kovenger can control them. If they are not united, they cannot be a serious power. Okay, but I, 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 you know, from where I see it right now, I don't see TPP has a, a lot of money or a lot of manpower can help their candidates in the future. So I would reasonably assume that in the future, all these candidates is going to vote according to their own benefits. So you see the TPP maybe coming up, James Tung's party. Mm. Do you see it just disappearing? I think there's a serious threat. 
I think they should really be careful about that. It's going to happen. And, uh, and then we have, uh, we have so many experience about this in the past already, Qingmingdang, right? And then uh, 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 and TPP that is more like Jimingdang, right? You know, I mean, on, on both sides, the small party just can't survive. And then I don't see TPP, how do they, how do they could be the exception here? I still don't see the proof of it. And Chowning, do you see a third party coming along in this legislative election? Um, I mean, maybe there will be more than just three parties. I mean, we have so many parties now having their uh, party list, right? My friend from the Green Party just announced their party list yesterday. Um, so who knows? Who knows? Uh, but I think I do share the perspective that it is likely uh, that we are going to have a minority government. And minority government means that will be uh, delayed in policy formation, uh, there will be uh, different priority, negotiation, um, I mean, KMT already mentioned that if they are back to power, they are going to establish this like special uh, investigation unit to investigate uh, policies under the Thai administration, so that could create another deadlock uh, in the policy formation process. So we, we really don't know. We really don't know. Leif? Yeah, I, I think I, I completely agree with, with Chief A about, about the TPP's potential. I, I think, you know, not to get too micro into the details, but if you look at, say, who even the number one and number two people on the TPP's party list are, Huang Sansan and Huang Guotang, I don't think that they are inevitably going to side with what Cohen Zhou wants to do every single time. Uh, and I think that's going to lead to a lot of difficulties for could remain a party whip of any kind, especially when Cud's not even the one in the legislative UN. Uh, I really think his ability to influence those who do get elected is just going to be uh, uh, difficult to say the least. Uh, I do think that, you know, not, not to already start talking about 2028. Uh, I know it's like so four years from now, but when we think about if I'm the KMT and, and you know, yeah, Lai Qingde might win the presidency, but if we block him from, from being able to pass policy meaningfully for four years, uh, I think it's really going to set the tone for what 2028 is going to look like. So even though it's, it's far too early to really start thinking about that, if, if we're thinking about hypotheticals, if we have a hung legislature for four years, uh, William Lai is going to have a tough time getting reelected. Uh, and the KMT might be in a good position. Uh, they also might not be if they're seen as the ones that were blocking policy for four years. I think that really is the potential for what the rhetoric of four years from now might look like. And Samson, what are the dangers of stagnation for four years if the DPP loses its majority and Lai ching is president? Well, obviously, the, the biggest danger is for whoever wins the next election um, and that just being completely unable or without incredible effort uh, being able to get anything through through the legislature and i think <clears throat> going back to the point about the tpp you know one of the you know the the inability of the party to adequately set the direction uh, for their lawmakers you know the the consequence of that is going to be that even if there is any kind of initial agreement between the tpp and the kmt to vote together and work together in the legislature to either thwart uh, a possible uh, DPP presidency, <clears throat> uh, any alliance is going to is quite likely to be quite short-lived, uh, and and therefore you know it, it's going to descend into chaos pretty quickly, um, and so in terms of you know more more broadly what what the um, the implications of that are is it, yeah I mean. It, Whichever party uh, you know 
is trying to push major uh, proposals through the legislature, which they will need to do. Even, you know, if, if Hoyoi wins the presidency, right, but he wants to return, as he says, uh, to reviving the uh, cross-strait uh, services pact uh, or agreement uh, without unity in the legislature, you know, there's absolutely no way that's going to happen either. And Chief A, what dangers do you see here of no unity in the leaf are you in? Okay, um, well, I asked a political analysis about this, okay, and then uh, I was really worried about that because uh, I really don't want to be like American. You know, it's, I really, yeah, I, I really don't want that to happen to us, okay, and the American politics uh, to happen to us. And then, um, so his point is, um, during Chen Shui-bian and Ma Ying-jiu time, Chen Shui-bian time is what we call stagnation time, right? You know, they, they always say that because of, uh, you know, because I don't have the majority in the Congress, so there are a lot of, uh, so I couldn't do anything, uh, right? That's what Chen Shui-bian government always is saying. But if you look at the numbers, the acts that passed during Chen Shui-bian time and Ma Ying-jiu time is actually about the same. Okay, which means that on domestic issues, a lot of like Mingsheng uh, Yiti, we are talking about like uh, maybe like about wages or about housing, you know, if it can pay, they actually can reach some degree of consensus. It's possible. However, what cannot be, the, you know, when, when you get to like a Hong Congress, is usually how to deal with China, all right? That's where the ideology is different late. So what I'm trying to say is that, um, yes, it sounds like it's going to be stagnation, yes, but I have great hope for these people will come to census or people like us, our voters, will give them pressure and then pass it when it's needed. Pass, pass the acts when it's needed. Pass the bill when it's needed. Okay, I think we, we, we voters have to tell them that stagnation is not acceptable. All right? But I'm just saying that um, I, I still have hopes they finally, maybe they could find some common grounds. Chow Ning, who do you think will win the election? Oh, my God. No. <laughs> I didn't hear that question. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I don't think I can. I think this is going to be very close. I think this, this election ain't over yet. Um, I heard among, uh, along the way that people are like, oh, you know, DPP has been leading and it is still leading. Um, I, 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 I think we all need to be very cautious. Still 30 days to go. A lot could happen. Um, I, I, I think it's too early to, to, to make the prediction. Um, I think it's going to be extremely, extremely close. Political science professors are notoriously awful at predicting elections, so <laughs> take what I say with a giant grain of salt. Uh, if, if the election were tomorrow, I think Lai would win. I don't think he would win by more than maybe five points. Uh, so I think it's, it's certainly going to be close. Again, we have too much time. How many days until the election? 30 some days that's a lifetime in Taiwanese politics so so it really so much can happen between now and then that what I think would happen tomorrow is is, is practically irrelevant. And Samson, your crystal ball is out. What, are you, what is it saying here? Well, yeah, it's difficult to disagree with uh, anything they've said. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in the parlance of the media, right, it is, it is lies election to lose right now as we currently stand. But I think also, you know, what is really noticeable this time 
is that, uh, you know, as difficult as it is and as, uh, you know, maybe slightly uh, fatigued the support for lighting currently is in the DPP overall, like it's, it's important to remember that this is after seven plus almost eight years of, uh, you know, DPP rule, it is going to be that. If you compare it to the situation eight years ago and the support for the KMT at that time, it is quite remarkable that the, the DPP is not polling below 20% somehow. And I think that, again, is testament to actually how successful Tsai Ing-wen has been. And Chi Fei. My money is on Lai Yanxiao. Okay? <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I'm just already say it because, you know, I am, I'm a social media right now. So I think I'm, you know, it's okay. I would just say that. I, I think Lai Yanxiao has a, a better chance. At this Ob point. Obviously, gambling is illegal in Taiwan. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Why not? All right. So, so are you guys betting? You know, I'm clapping bets right now. <laughs> and I shall ask my panel to some closing comments, Samson, about what you've seen of the run up to the election so far. What's really grabbed you? Any particular issue, any particular incident, except the one in the hotel, which we all know about. <laughs> oh, please. I mean, that. I'm sorry, you just told me not to talk about it, but I think we, it's impossible not to talk about that. It was absolutely one of the most remarkable events in Taiwanese politics and will be remembered 20, 30 years from now. Uh, as, I mean, you could just go back and rewatch that, that thing again and again for the, the utter audacity of uh, Mr. Gore um, uh, in what he did there. Stepping away from that... Um, I think the really interesting thing about Taiwanese elections, uh, you know, we haven't seen it yet, right? It is now, we're now getting into it like campaign season proper and the campaign rallies. Um, you know, for anybody coming from the outside, this is where you really, really feel the uh, vibrancy and the enthusiasm for de democracy in Taiwan, especially coming from uh, places that are slightly more... Uh, cynical, jaded uh, about the entire democratic process. I mean, it's, it's really, really inspirational to see. And so uh, I'm really looking forward over the coming four weeks to actually getting out on the street and uh, seeing how, you know, democracy in action and how people celebrate and live uh, democracy in Taiwan. And live. Yeah, I, I watched the entire press conference twice. <laughs> uh, once, for, once for research and once just for entertainment. Um, so uh, what, what's remarkable to me is, is really how, I, I forget who said it earlier, all, all three uh, presidents have really tried to present, the presidential candidates have tried to present themselves as, as uh, being Tsai Ing-wen 2.0 when it comes to their cross-strait policy and how uh, so much of what makes them different really got blown open when the vice presidential nominees were announced. Uh, I think what makes this presidential election different is that the VPs, uh, have almost stolen a spotlight a little bit from the presidential candidates to a degree, especially during their announcement. Um, and I think the VPs will play a, a pretty significant role over the next few weeks, um, only because of how prolific they both are in their own rights. All three of them are, uh, I, sh I should say. Um, but, but seeing Zhao Saokang uh, and how he is, he's been one of the champions for American skepticism in Taiwan, uh, and the fact that he's the founder of the new party uh, and, and has so many deep blue ties, I think really colors the whole camp. Uh, and on the other side, to have Xiaobing Kim, uh, you know, the, the notorious cat, cat diplomat, cat warrior, uh, who is, you know, known in the United States as, uh, as, you know, the one who managed to both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans, 
has, has also very much painted uh, the, the lie camp in a very different light than it was before these vice presidential announcements. Um, the last thing is, is just uh, tell your friends to vote. Please vote. Uh, vote, especially because I cannot vote. Uh, and and, and not, not to be the American in the room, but it is very uh, inspiring to see such high turnout rates in Taiwan when in my own country people don't value their right to vote uh, nearly as much. And it's remarkable that you know, Taiwan's first free and fair uh, election was in 1996. That wasn't that long ago. Uh, and it really is just remarkable that, that we're still able to, to be here to witness such an amazing election all these years later. And Chifei, what, what's grabbed you at this election so far? Okay, um, I know election is a time about, like, you know, we see people yell at, each, yell at each other, you know, people have a lot of disagreements. But I like to look at a different perspective. I like to see what they all agree on, all right? I think in this time, I really see that we have more, we have, we, we, we all agree that uh, we have to build up a national defense. I think this is something that during this process, we, I find this is a consensus among all, this, all these parties. So maybe this is something we will do in the, the coming four years. And then I'm hoping that in the future, we can see more of this consensus coming out. And then not just like, you know, we, we hate each other, we, we, you know, we, I disagree with you, you know. And then I'm hoping that we could see really that's focus on the things we can agree on. And Chowning, your closing comments. Sure. Um, I agree with everyone. I think the hotel was one thing that we will remember for a very long time. Uh, the VP nominees, I do agree that this time around they are going to play a vital role in the election, uh, especially we are so close to the finish line. Um, I agree with Chifei. I hope this will be the beginning of a consensus building. Uh, I also am so impressed by the enthusiasm and in attention from the international media. Um, if you are talking to international press, you know they are here. They are ready to cover this event. They are ready to decipher. They are ready to interpret the election result. So I think we are not just voting to prolong our democratic system. We are also sending a signal to an international society. And I think the international society want to see Taiwan to have the, to have the will to defend ourselves, to have the will to safeguard our national security. I think this is what they want to see. And for us to have that international allies, I think we need to do that. I think we owe them that. And um, I'm terrified, but I'm also uh, ready for this election to, to end. I'm, I'm terrified to see the result, but I'm also ready for this to be over. And you've been listening to a special edition of ICRT's Taiwan This Week, which was recorded live at the ICRT TVBS World Taiwan Election Roundtable event that was held at the National Taiwan Normal University in Taipei. I was joined by National Jungjury University Assistant Professor Lev Nackman, Bloomberg's Taipei Bureau Chief Samson Ellis, independent journalist, writer and host Fan Chi Fei, and Oakland University Associate Professor Su Chaoning. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps, and don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.